Welcome to The Local Authority, the podcast by Local Government Chronicle and TPX Impact. Each month, we bring together leading figures from within and around local government to discuss the sector's future. If you enjoy listening to The Local Authority, hit the subscribe button to have new episodes delivered to your device each month. You can share this podcast with your colleagues by going to lgcplus.com forward slash podcast. Welcome to The Local Authority, the podcast from Local Government Chronicle and TPX Impact. I'm Sarah Kalkin, the LGC editor. Today, we're discussing the thorny issue of delayed discharges and the relationship between health and social care. It's an issue that has dominated the headlines of late, with social care often bearing the brunt of the blame in the national narrative. In this episode, we want to get behind the headlines to explore what's going on and highlights some of the solutions and innovative approaches to this issue that are already been taken in some areas. To do this, I'm joined by a very able panel today, Sarah McClinton, President of the Association of Directors of Adult Social Services and Director of Health and Adult Services at Greenwich Royal Borough Council. She's also place lead for Greenwich for the South East London Integrated Care Board. Robin Tunnam, Chief Executive of Calderdale Metropolitan Borough Council and place leader in the West Yorkshire Integrated Care Board. Miriam Deakin, Director of Policy and Strategy at NHS Providers, the representative body for NHS Trusts. And Sam Raphael, partner at TPX Impact. So thank you all for taking part today. I think we have to start with this question and this number that's been in the news so much lately of around 13,000 patients being stuck in the NHS uh, and to use a horrible term having no right to reside and needing to move on the Prime Minister has very publicly put the blame on social care Um, Sarah I'm going to come to you what's going on is that fair it's not fair Um, we are repeatedly hearing this very simplified narrative that there are 13 and a half thousand people waiting in hospital uh, and waiting for social care. That's simply not the case. Um, We do know that uh, there are far more complex issues here, and and I think it's really important to start by saying we're talking about people here, not not, not beds and processes. Um, But I think um, the the most... I mean, the NHS's own data uh, suggests that it's more... uh, that approximately 40% of those people might be uh, waiting for social care. I would argue it's actually less than that because... Um, many people are waiting for uh, simple hospital processes like transport and pharmacy and things like that to be uh, sorted out. And then there are people that are waiting um, who have got more complex needs. Some of those might be waiting for social care, but they're also waiting for um, uh, community health services, for district nurses, for equipment, for therapists, uh, and those really vital services that can help support people in their own homes. Sure. Thank you, Sarah. And Miriam, from the health side, I mean, what's your take on that number? Yeah, I I agree with Sarah that the debate has become far too simplified. I think if we want to really look at the root causes, we need to look at why the health and care system as a whole is so pressurised across the piece. So almost whichever service you look at, demand is rising and we haven't got the capacity to respond uh, in a timely way. Uh, and Sarah's absolutely right. Uh, NHS England 
published some helpful data looking at patients who'd had a length of stay in hospital over 21 days. Um, and the, the top reason for that delay was actually waiting for a community health rehab bed. So that the number of patients uh, waiting for that reason was around 23%. And then the next two reasons were waiting for uh, care in the home and perhaps waiting for a care or residential home bed. And they were sort of similar numbers. Uh, but the, the reasons that people can be delayed in hospital are myriad. Uh, they're certainly not the fault of any one part of the system. What we've got is a health and care system, which is which is really struggling under the strain of the demand that we're seeking to meet. Sure, sure. Yeah. And, and Robin, what does this look like in, in West Yorkshire? Well, well, so I agree with comments from colleagues, um, from Sarah and Miriam. Uh, I, I suppose the language of blame is not helpful. Um, it just hardens positions. I think that Social care, you could say, is being blamed, but then there's also the focus on blaming NHS, on elective recovery, on GP access. There's a lot of blame flying around and none of it is helpful and productive. I think if you talk to professionals across the system, I think there's a recognition of the shared problem. I think um, it's felt like a quite a shift in the last few years, certainly last two or three years, and even prior to the pandemic, in terms of the recognition of NHS leaders of the need to resolve and address the challenges in social care. This hasn't happened overnight. I was just checking. I think there's now been, in the context of still no solutions to the longer-term solution social care, 17 green reviews or green papers or white papers in the last 20 years, and still no solutions. So I think we have a set of cumulative issues affecting the whole system, the pandemic, acuity of demand and complexity of need, but also a need to, you know, the challenge of, of, of thinking about what is the healthcare system going to look like and um, how we focus the healthcare system around effective prevention and get that back on the table and begin to think about the challenge of turning that around and also the need to think about admission avoidance as well, which is key. It's the, the language of discharge is very easy to focus on, but actually admission avoidance and what is proposition for community services and early intervention is key for me. Thanks. Sure. Um, Sam, just, just to come to you, your experience working in this area, we, what issues do you see arising between health and social care when they're, they're trying to move patients on? Uh, yeah, so I agree with the comments. It's a myriad of issues. And I think there is, uh, obviously, there's a huge workforce issues within social care, but also within community health. So if you're, once you're supporting people out of hospital, it's not just around the care that's provided, it's around OTs, physios, uh, district nurses that can support people in the community. And that focus on reducing readmissions, because I think readmissions have slowly over the last 10 years crept up from around sort of 12 to 15 percent of people, which obviously is a cycle that keeps people going back into hospital uh, and is obviously not particularly um, beneficial. I think they're from sort of managing it uh, sort of for on a day to day basis, there is a lack of sometimes a lack of collaboration or understanding across social care and health in terms of the remits and roles and the pressures on each other, which uh, without sort of improving that collaboration and understanding of what the pressures are in both areas leads to some of that fracture, which slows down um, supporting people who are uh, patients or residents who are in a really vulnerable position and need to be supported to be home safely within a as t- timely possible, p- timely way as possible. Yeah, sure. Uh, Robin, you you started to touch on then on some of the some of what might be the solutions to this, and particularly talking about the preventative side of things. But how do how does a system under so much pressure as health and social care is now kind of 
get to that point of being able to look upstream? Yeah, I, I, well, you have to do both, don't you? We've got to manage the present uh, and um, provide the kind of s- solutions to the challenge of, of of discharge today. But we've got to kind of get upstream on this. I guess, I guess, I guess the some, I guess the thing I guess a plea is that we have to avoid the kind of slight breathe of relief as things ease off a bit, which are starting to ease off, and then kind of go back to functioning as we are and then it gets into autumn again and we have this thing called winter that comes around uh, every year although having said that i think it's felt like pretty wintry for much of the year for the system hasn't it so i i i think there's some there's some things we really need to 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 go go for which is first i mean there's a select committee inquiry on prevention that's just commencing we need to i think make the case for the things that determine health and well-being being invested in. Uh, as I speak today, we still don't have the public health grant outcome. So, um, and the promise of a potential another year of flat money on public health, which has been effectively declining in real terms. So, um, we, I think we have to fight the argument that we have to invest in prevention today. Um, because whatever we do around the system and the response to discharge, we are developing a, a, a population that's getting iller and frailer um, with more complex needs and uh, without even getting into the impact for people of the lived experience of the cost of living crisis and poverty that's escalating. So so I think we just have to be able to have these, these arguments and make these cases and ask for proper capital investment and long-term investment in the things that keep people well. Um, but I do think the other final thing I'll say is I do think that the kind of there's a very sterile debate between have you got enough social care space? Have you not got enough social care space? Um, different people arguing over that. It's have we got the right social care provision for the communities we serve now? And I think that's a different answer to maybe the answer three years ago. And I do think that the social care sector has to adjust, but so so also do um government's expectations and our fiscal expectations of what that looks like. We it might simply we're going to have to manage more com- more complex need in community settings long term. We've got to we've got to address that. So and so, more funding is going to be required if we're really going to stand a chance of solving this well, issue. Y- yes, but workforce um, workforce that has the skill set and the proposition to our workforce that actually inspires and motivates people to want to work in social care. It's pretty tough at the moment to to describe a positive narrative of social care when you see the media stuff. But also just the um, the ability for sort of our commissioning to adapt to the uh, develop commissioning that respond and services that respond to complex need. You know, I mean, the very simply things that you know the virtual world model, more complex um, extra care provision. Like it, 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 the system's got to change from the old social care system as it was. Sarah, so I think it's no surprise uh, that um, that this winter is uh, ex- extremely challenged. I think that that, um, that complexity, people with more and more long-term conditions, uh, more older people, you know, we could see this coming. And, and uh, in fact, ADAS uh, in, in July was uh, publicly saying this was likely to be the worst winter that, that DAS is, uh, the Directors of Adult Social Care, had ever uh, seen uh, previously. So, but I think that uh, given those changes in uh, that we're now, uh, the, the different... Um, needs that we're having to meet, I think it does mean that we have to look at things quite differently. 
So those uh, points that Robin's made about the focusing much more on prevention, early intervention, and how we prevent people from going into hospital, I think are really important. Uh, and that's um, that's some of our public health interventions. But it's also about how do we give people the right care and support in their communities to keep them well uh, and to stop them deteriorating. So at the moment, we've got over uh, half a million people across the country waiting for some sort of care and support at home. Uh, and if we continue just to focus on acutes and hospitals, then uh, we continue with this vicious cycle where people are um, getting more unwell at home, where crisis uh, happens, where care arrangements break down and people are more likely then to go into hospital. And then I think that, um, you know, if there's people that, that do need support to come out of hospital, uh, it's it's uh, thinking about what, what does that uh, care and support need to look like. And we often hear, again, this sort of oversimplified, well, there's lots of capacity in care homes, so if only we could uh, have more care home places and people could just move, then that would have the, pro the problem sorted. Uh, clearly, that's not the case. And actually, what we need uh, is to really focus on services that support people to recover, give people, uh, you know, time for recovery, rehabilitation, reagement, and support to to get back to uh, the, the as independent as they can be, uh, and more support, including those community health services that that can enable people to live in their own homes for longer, or or to return home if they have had a period of of being in well, unwell. So I think what what we're those um, those services or intermediate care services, if you like, across health and social care need to be really where we focus our efforts to think about what those services look like in order to um, enable people to, be, to become as, uh, to, to recover as much as possible. And is your experience that those services have actually reduced a lot over the past sort of decade or so? I know there was a programme in the NHS around sort of closing a lot of community hospital beds um, is are we now feeling the impact of that? I think we've definitely seen a, a reduction in terms of NHS uh, community beds and, and intermediate care. Uh, but I also think that the way those services were uh, organised and configured were weren't necessarily to to uh, respond to the needs that people have today. So uh, often they had very closed criteria. It was very difficult for them to manage uh, the sorts of complex needs that we're talking about that people now have and that that need to be. Uh, address. So I think it's um, so I think it, it, it's about it's important that we think about intermediate care across uh, the spectrum of needs from very um, very specialised neuro rehab, for example, at one end to the reabling support that local authorities are providing on a on a daily basis to people uh, in their own homes. Uh, so there's a whole range of models within that, and I think it it's uh, incumbent on integrated care boards and systems to be actually thinking about that planning uh, and, and how those services work together uh, because I think there are lots of different terms which we use that are quite confusing and sometimes used inter interchangeably like intermediate care, step down, reabement, rehab uh, but actually what we need is, is um, responses that are personalised and uh, offer the right support to that individual and that, that person that enables them to recover. And that actually means all of those services working together uh, in a collaborative way. Sure, thank you. We're definitely going to come on to talk about the new integrated care system and care board arrangements and, and what role that can play. But Miriam, what, from, from the health perspective, how do you think services need to change to, to get away from this, this constant issue that comes around every year? 
Well, I think it's quite interesting the the sort of cultural shift that that um Robin was describing there whereby we will need to manage more complexity in the community. So having worked at NHS providers for a number of years, it's really interesting how the debates moved on actually. So we have got quite a treatment illness orientated system, but we now hear trust leaders being as interested in addressing health inequalities in preventative measures. Um, and as Sarah said, we've got this um, sort of reinvigorated focus on intermediary care, step down, rehab and re rehabilitation and reablement, all of which I think is going to be really critical. Uh, the only slight caveat I place on it is that I think we find ourselves in a bit of a tricky position uh, in England where we haven't got the preventative services, the preventative investment, but in our core NHS, we're also underbedded relative to comparable countries. Um, so we, we do find ourselves in a bit of a tricky position where, where I think we're going to have to have a conversation about funding and, and where it's best invested, um, but also really agree on the opportunities offered by the workforce. I mean, clearly the workforce across the NHS and social care is under extreme pressure at the moment. And in the NHS, we've got this grip of industrial action, which is just dreadful for everybody. Uh, so I wonder if if there is flex there to think about more blended roles. I'd be interested in the, the panel's view about how the workforce might evolve over time as well. Yeah, great. So, but you do think we do need more beds? Is that part of the solution? And is that more acute beds? I th I think we need to we need more beds. I think we need more beds. I think that is part of the problem and part of the part of the issue that we're having with patient flow. It varies across the country, but in some parts of the country we clearly don't have the beds in the right place in the right numbers. So in some places that is actually going to be about acute beds. Uh in other places it might be about more investment in um intermediate care kind of step down and community facilities. But if you compare us with other other countries internationally, we have fewer beds per capita as well as fewer doctors and nurses. So that capital investment, I think, as a, as a colleague mentioned, has been very tight in recent years and remains very tight. Uh, and we, we simply haven't kept pace with the needs, the changing needs of an ageing population. Yeah. And I don't see any of those 40 new hospitals we were promised um, on the horizon. Um, Sam, I'll come to you and then, and then Robin. Yeah, I was just going to, obviously funding is a huge issue in terms of the amount of funding, but I think the lack of sort of a simple funding framework around hospital discharge and uh, admission avoidance and keeping people safe in the community is really significant. Sort of the annual later and later additional funding that sort of is poured out to try and get people out of discharge is too late because you can't plan the services you, that you need to support those people safely back into a, whether it's a temporary care home bed or whether it's back into their community. And it distracts the whole system onto doing sort of daily situation reports, onto sort of focusing on spending this funny money in a short-term amount of time. You get to April, everyone's exhausted, breathe, and you don't get chance to do some of the long-term change and collaboration work. You need to really improve the system across the board, even just there's the wider prevention element, but or even just that flow out of hospital and making sure services are there to support people. So the funding framework, I think, just doesn't incentivise um, the sort of behaviour we want people and the organisations involved to follow. Yeah, I mean, every winter this becomes an issue. And as I think someone was saying before, winter has been very long um, this year. So why should the government just accept that and and fund, provide this with more certainty rather than coming at the last minute with it. Um, Robin? Yeah, just a couple of things I'd say, particularly building on what Miriam said. I, 
the problem with this is uh, it's often sort of NHS versus social care or which bit of the which bit is fighting for what resource and, and workforce. Unfortunately, it's all of the above. So I, I, all of it's true. We we don't have enough beds per per capita population. We don't have enough GPs. We don't have enough uh, uh, investment in prevention. And we don't have enough social care capacity or spend or workforce. So that's a problem. And um, I think all comparators would support that. So there's a proposition about what is the role of the state and what's the future role of the state. And I think however much there's the goodwill and relationships are, I think, a lot better than they may have been. And there's some strong relationships across the system. There's still, I think, a, a, a sense of we, we're modelling, I mean, just sort of out of hospital services, some of the language as if the hospital is the focus, when in fact people's lives are lived in communities. You know, even if you've got a chronic condition, you know, unless, you know, you're in a sort of end of life position, you're not, your life is not lived in the hospital long term, you know. So, so it's, it's actually about, we're still using the 1947, 75 years of the NHS. Well, I think we're still framing it in the same language as when the NHS was created, when people had moments of illness got treated, then went back, rather than people living lives, and we haven't really touched on, people living lives often, well, from childhood through their working lives, often sometimes, you know, working, receiving social care support, but living a a life, a long life. Uh, And that's an entirely different proposition. If we start from community, start from people and the lived experience, start from the flourishing potential of people to have control and agency over the care they receive, and then build the services around that. And we just we just haven't done that. Then the resources should match to that. Sure, thank you. And Sarah, would, would you agree with that, presumably? Yes, absolutely agree with that. We have to start with people and their communities and, and how we can support people uh, to, to live the lives that, that they want to lead. Um, I was just going to uh, reinforce really Sam's point also about the short-term funding. Um, you know, having funding coming at the last minute uh, to buy the wrong kinds of things is 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 the least helpful thing. Uh, and actually, it's that long-term sustainable funding that we need to be able to begin to 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 think about and plan the capacity uh, that's going to be needed. So we really need to be planning now for next winter, don't we? Um, and that that capacity isn't just about um, provision; it, it it is about workforce. So. Um, absolutely uh, agree with Miriam's point about um, uh, the, the need for more acute beds. And I think that's the levels of occupancy that we're seeing in some acute hospitals means people in the hospital really don't have any time to think or to plan or, or, or um, you know, to, to provide that support to people to think about what, what, what their next steps n- n- might need to be. Um, but actually, uh, you know, and but, but actually, that that those levels of occupancy in hospitals, we think, also has a, has a relationship with more people than ending up in long term residential care homes, for example, because there isn't um, the the that because people are more likely to decompensate, etc. But I think that 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 workforce. So we can have we can plan capacity, but actually, we, what we need to plan for is the workforce, and um, that that has to be. Um, you know, it's not. It's about social workers who can uh, do this really important uh, work with with families, particularly whether there's more complex issues. It's about having uh, therapists and access to uh, physiotherapy and occupational therapy, and how we need to really plan uh, that part of the workforce, as well as obviously all the doctors and nurses, etc. Um, but I think that within that, there are there are probably um, 
you know, workforce is probably our biggest rate limiting factor at the moment, as opposed to money. Um, uh, we, we do need that longer term funding, but 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 it's the workforce that's, that's one of our biggest challenges. So I think we're probably we do need to think more creatively about how some of those roles might need to change, how you use, um, you know, that really um, expert clinical uh, physiotherapy, for example, but how that, that, that can be used to, to train up uh, and and uh, and skill up uh, more people across uh, the workforce, uh, across health and care, uh, and there probably is more opportunity for for more hybrid roles and for more um, using all of our capacity, moving people around the system uh, to um, support people in the way that they need it, uh, rather than um, the, some of the silos that we've got currently. And I think for me, it's more about moving people often than than moving money. Um, makes the most difference. And do you think then the the new integrated care arrangements um, could support that? And if so, how? Um, I think they are an opportunity to support it uh, because I think what they ought to be about is is that much more, firstly, uh, thinking about local communities and populations from a bottom-up way. So thinking about how people live their lives in the community, uh, where they go, how they, um, uh, what their lives are like, and then what does that mean really in terms of the the needs that they have uh, for health and care and support. So I think that's the first thing, is is that an integrated uh, care board or system is an opportunity uh, to a shift to that much more bottom-up approach. I think the other opportunity is this uh, notion of collaboration and how the system needs to, to, to um, and can think about how people work together uh, to really uh, improve health and well-being in our communities and in our populations, uh, rather than thinking about individual organisations and, and, and those sort of organisational boundaries. So that's the opportunity um, but it um, it does feel quite hard work um, because it, we we've got quite a long way to go from where we're where we are now. I'd suggest. Um, Robin, in West Yorkshire, are people leaving behind yeah. their organisational boundaries? Uh, no, I don't think so. But it is hard work because it, uh, uh, collaboration is hard work. It's actually a lot harder than competition. It takes more time. Um, it takes more time to bring yourself and your organisation and your your teams into that kind of conversation. And actually, uh, the previous Health and Care Act didn't really encourage it in some ways, incent- well, incentivize the market model, didn't it? So so I think it's, it's taking a while to change cultures and around commissioning and collabora- collaboration will take time. Um, I do think um, the ICB is a positive o- opportunity if, if social care is embraced and made core to that. Uh, and one around workforce, because I think one of the big challenges around social care workforce is it doesn't have the identity and brand of the NHS. It's a simple point that there is uh, the brand and identity of the NHS, which is powerful, the sense of affiliation. I mean, in West Yorkshire, we have over 700 different social care providers, you know, very, very tiny to, to larger national organisations. And the complexity of the social care market is quite is difficult. Um, the role of local government is obviously core to that. And but we do have a integrated care board that has given Calderdale Cares as our place uh, place um committee and place identity within the West Yorkshire board, a lot of power and, and, and places by default and a lot of delegation. And we've we're using that. We've got a campaign around the dignity of social care. We're doing a lot of work to encourage both people returning to work and also younger people into social care. We've got 
films of staff talking about their lived experience. We've got lots of examples of that. We're doing a lot of work and outreach in communities about the dignity and value of social work. And I think really trying to challenge even some of our economic colleagues or economic strategies that have these sort of like high status sort of tech and digital jobs. And then we have, oh, this hospitality and social cares, which, you know, and there's a whole thing around predominantly women, predominantly low paid, working often in small employers and how we identify that brand of social care as something that's actually really core and foundational to the economy of West Yorkshire. And we need to really sing the praises of that and the value of that much more. Yeah. And we just, when we have got those 700 providers, I mean, is, is that the best model or, should, you know, should we be looking at bringing social care staff into the NHS or back into public sector employment? Sarah's put a hand up, so maybe good to see Sarah's thoughts on that. <laughs> Nicely ducked. <laughs> Sarah, did you want to... Okay, I'll, I'll go. I don't think it's about uh, bringing everybody into the NHS, but I think Robin's point is really well made about how do we really value social care staff? How are they seen as part of, um, you know, public service, which is about uh, uh, supporting people, uh, how that, so so something about having um, a, a stronger value and identity. But I think that fundamentally, we have to tackle those issues about pay, the fact that people working in social care uh, are, are, are not sufficiently paid and um, they, they don't have terms and conditions, which um, colleagues in the, in the NHS might get. So, um, so we're completely, as well as competing with retail and hospitality, we're competing with um, people in the NHS who do often doing very similar roles, but with very different terms and conditions. So I think I think we have to look at that. Uh, and and then what are those um, opportunities for for career development and how people can sort of move around the system and uh, and build their skill, skills and and expertise and and be uh, really recognised for that. I think broadly, social care is often seen as a drain when actually, um, you know, it is about all of us. It is about um, our economy and, and it is uh, part of that essential infrastructure, if you like, if we're going to uh, tackle some of the bigger issues that we've got in terms of our labour market, etc. Then actually we need to uh, think about um, how we support carers, but also how we think about uh, care and support being there to enable other people to work as well. Yeah, sure. Um, Sam? Uh, yeah, I was just going to add on the workforce. I think I think there's around, uh, social care adds about 50 billion to the UK economy each year. It's huge. And it isn't seen, as Sarah said, around as a positive impact. Um, and a piece of work we did with an organisation with Engage Britain with a group of 16 people who worked or accessed care. Obviously, pay was one of the main things they wanted as part of the career. But there's the reputation of social care and there's the career progression. So it's around when you get to the point of being a senior carer, actually, can you take on some of those tasks that a district nurse might do? Uh, those tasks and allowing that progression for individuals for when they access social care, they can see for themselves there is progression and there is the same sort of reputational benefits, uh, rewards that you might get if you're in the NHS, which again, I think we should be really clear that the NHS pay and rewards isn't perfect. <laughs> um, and there's a lot of things to go on there. But uh, I think that came out really strongly that people just wanted the chance to develop their skills, to be able to deal better with challenging behaviour, to be able to sort of do tasks that they'd otherwise have to wait. And that really improves the outcome for individuals as well, because they get less people coming into their home, less people supporting them in a better relationship with those individuals. Yeah, well, I suppose my question 
was trying to get out with Robin before is, well, if you've got this, you know, these 700 providers, this dif- disparate market, who who organises that? Who makes that happen for the social care workforce? I think it's incredibly complex. I think, what, it's over 17,000 providers across England. That's huge. And most of them are really small organisations, um, predominantly uh, sort of small independent-led organisations. And it's really hard to in any way coordinate that. So I think there is, uh, uh, I guess, again, from this group of individuals who worked in care, there was no fixed view on whether they should be part of the NHS or part of a private or social organisation, as long as they had the working conditions anyone would want from a good employer. That's what really drove them to get that satisfaction. There wasn't really a distinct answer around that. Um, But in terms of the fragmentation of the market, it's incredibly complex. And to change that, is a huge, huge ask. Yeah, sure. Um, Miriam, I, I wanted to come to you on, on this question around um, the new integrated care systems, integrated care boards, and, and do you think that has got the potential to make a difference? How, what's the experience of your members on that? I think it really does have potential. I think when we're talking about um, integrated care systems, it, it's always worth remembering that they're each so different. I mean, across the country, we've, we've almost got 42 different models. Um, it's not just in terms of geography, population size, but some of the health and, and care needs they might be dealing with, like levels of deprivation and so on. They're all incredibly dif- different. Um, and at early stages. So I think the potential is there. And we've heard some good examples. So, uh, for example, funds being diverted to fund um, the living wage in for, for care workers in a particular locality. For example, there's, there's a lot of potential, I think, for ICSs to help broker those strategic level relationships. Um, and then I think there's a lot of potential at the level of place. I think that is probably where individual people are more likely to see a difference in terms of integrated services uh, rather than at that bigger system footprint. But the potential is def- definitely there. We're just in the foothills, I think, however, of realising it. Sure. Sure. And you mentioned the potential of place. I know a lot of councils are increasingly working on, on this sort of neighbourhood model. Um, I don't know, Sarah Robin, is, is health part of that or could it be a bigger part of, of that uh just briefly I, i'm there's some green shoots in the nhs on this as well i think the fuller report is an opportunity if we can harness that we've just got to work hard at it though it's hard in to to to, to shift focus away from the sort of the, the present but I, I the sort of notion that the fuller report on primary care which is you know recognizing the co-located neighborhood based working based around early intervention is is key. Um, seeing the role of primary care networks as a sort of lever for locality working, but actually seeing it alongside neighbourhood teams and local authorities and the voluntary community sector we haven't said so much about. Um, so, yeah, and the other thing is just, I think, just bringing to bear the context of the whole health and care system, because we talk about IC, integrated care boards, is it, the worry is it's been very much about integrated care boards, and we have talked about the ICS today, but it's the system um, and the whole system of the whole potential of, of places. Uh, we haven't talked about unpaid carers, you know, it's a huge number of unpaid carers providing social care and how we develop and support unpaid carers to manage complex and challenging lives that they live. And so so it, 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 it's, it, it's an opportunity, um, but it's, it is, as I think Miriam said, we're still in the foothills. Sure. And I guess we've 
I feel like we've talked about the sort of the big picture, the long-term um, solution, but as you said, we're in the foothills, that stuff takes time. Is there anything that, sort of any good practice people have seen that, pe- you know, other places could be adopting immediately? Um, uh, Miriam, anything? Yeah, I mean, I, I think we do, we pick up, and I'm sure others on the panel do, uh, good practice examples. I think the challenge is uh, they tend to be quite small scale, so there's something about how we learn from each other and scale up, I think. But uh, we've heard some really interesting uh, endeavours around trying to support the workforce differently, as colleagues have described. So uh, integrated training offers or integrated training academies for health and social care staff. Some endeavours, for example, to, to see care staff uh, offer insulin injections in care homes is one example, so that patients don't have to see multiple people. Um, we're skilling up people differently um, and it's it's quick and easy support when you need it, I think, within the care home. Um, so some interesting stuff. Um, lots of examples, I think, of home first models. They're really developing. Uh, so one interesting example where a trust provides um, what they describe as a, a quick start service. So a patient or service user is referred in parallel to adult social care and to the quick start service. So quick start can add a bit of capacity uh, immediately while the person's needs are assessed for the longer term. So some good examples, I think, of people really working together and broadly a real commitment to look at reablement, intermediate care and home first with different eyes. And the NHS, the people I speak to, NHS trust leaders anyway, do understand that some of the sticking plaster solutions we've seen, like the 200 million for extra care home places that we just received at, at the back end of winter, are not a sustainable investment and aren't necessarily creating the pathways that we need for people. Sure. sure. Sarah, do you have some examples of sort of short-term solutions or, or best practice people could be looking to in the short term? Well, I, I mean, I think there's examples of best practice all over the place. And, and um, part of the challenge sometimes is um, understanding what the kind of core components are, are, of, of those are and, and what is scalable and what's what's actually uh, very uh, particular to, to that innovation that is responding to the needs of a particular community or, or uh, place. Uh, but I, um, you know, I, mean, I, I, I had the privilege yesterday of spending uh, time with Dr. Claire Fuller and some brilliant primary care colleagues in Greenwich uh, when um, people were really um, uh, uh, talking about uh, our Live Well Greenwich service, which is, uh, you know, that, that work in, in the community, people who can um, uh, help with all kinds of things from mental health to diet to exercise so that sort of social prescribing offer which is doesn't the words don't quite um, do justice to it uh, but I think that that's that's the opportunity so I think with with integrated care boards uh, we've had a lot of focus on the governance and, and setting up all the arrangements uh, they're still in their infancy but I think the more that they can um, build on all of that work that's going on at a community level or that grassroots level and build up from there uh, I think that's part of the opportunity, but I think there's also an opportunity uh, then to to understand what's scalable and, and how that best uh, what might be happening in one community. Uh, you know, might might there's some of those uh, examples might be uh, used more across an integrated care system. Um, but I think you know there's lots of examples where um, uh, community health services and local authorities have, have been working together um, to join up those services and to 
uh, use the capacity they've got in a way that, that social care staff, for example, can be doing uh, some of those health tasks in, in, at the times when, they're, uh, when they might have downtime, for example. But, but yeah, I think there's lots of good practice out there. I was just going to say, so yeah, just uh, probably the same time as Sarah was doing that. I was, we had our partnership meeting yesterday. And we heard from a uh, aging well practitioner, a young colleague who was talking about that sort of integrated model around aging well and sort of working entirely. She said, "I work without walls," which is lovely that she was sort of thinking that way. Went into sort of a home in, with one set of issues and then identified the whole set of other issues around environmental health and housing and just she just described that way of thinking and i think if if, if we can support practice to be that kind of system-led there's real opportunities but i do think there is a bit like and we were we did a year ago in west yorkshire shift some money into um better pay for social care staff there is some really foundational <laughs> sort of core things we need to get right and we need to pay people better we need to value and and talk up social care and create the kind of energy around social care that means that some of the workforce capacity issues start to solve these problems. Sure. So I think we're, we're rapidly running out of time. Um, I guess perhaps to finish, I mean, if there was, there's clearly a lot of good stuff going on on, on the ground and good practice, but if there's one thing that you needed from the government, what would that be? Um, um, start with you, Miriam. I think this is challenging in politics right now, given where we are in the election cycle, but I think it is that longer term vision. It's that longer term view of how we invest sustainably across health and care uh, and avoid some of the um, sticking plaster measures that have ended up being warranted, uh, particularly in recent months. So that longer term view, accepting that that is difficult in politics. Sure. And uh, Sarah? Well, as you'd expect, I'd agree with that long-term uh, sustainable funding, valuing the workforce. And then I think, you, you know, we do uh, work and uh, understand kind of working together locally really well. I'm not sure that's always reflected at a national level. So actually co-producing some of these solutions would help. Sure. Um, Sam, come to you and then give Robin the last word not sure <laughs> uh, yeah I agree it's sort of having a long-term sustainable plan with funding attached to it that provides real guidance and vision for the future of social care while also allowing those localized approaches that really will help people work within those communities so it isn't too sort of set in stone it sort of has sustainability but yet allows local flexibility to be able to meet people's needs depending on where they live sure Robin final words uh, given where we are politically and electorally now that any party seeking to run the country from the next election will start in the first week with a 10-year commitment to health and social care, a clarification of the role of the state in people's lives in health and social care, and with pride and purpose and talk up every single person working in health and social care to give them some energy, inspiration and value because there is pride and purpose in health and social care. And we should just be singing and shouting about that a lot more. Sure. Thank you. Well, thank you all for um, a really, a really great discussion. Um, if you've enjoyed The Local Authority, please like and subscribe and we'll see you on the next episode. Goodbye. This podcast was brought to you by LGC and TPX Impact. Local Government Chronicle, or LGC, is the leading title for senior local government officers and the authoritative voice of the sector. 
To subscribe to LGC for full online and print access, go to lgcplus.com. TPX Impact is a change agency on a mission to build 21st century public sector institutions, which are catalysts for change in the internet and climate era to radically improve outcomes for communities. For more information, go to tpximpact.com. TPX Impact, transformation that matters.